It's about knowing the type of customer you want or you have, and then curating an experience to kind of go after that and to make sure that it is, it's malleable enough to fit in this unbelievably strange time that we're in right now. I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused a shutdown of industries like the hotel and hospitality businesses, including food and beverage, restaurants, bars, entertainment, movie theaters, sports venues, and of course, one of America's favorite pastimes, shopping at retail stores. Mom and pop shops or international mega brands, they've all had to close their doors. Now, over half a year into this pandemic, they may be slowly beginning to reopen their doors depending on geography or a company's position on how to maintain a safe shopping environment. But in many cases, they're doing that just to shut down again as COVID cases surge. With occupancy rates in hotels still hovering around 40%, it's equally true that shoppers are choosing to stay at home and buy more online and limit, or simply forego, trips to main streets or malls. Some retailers whose businesses were fundamentally online to begin with, well, they've thrived. And some retailers have barely survived. And other large-name brands have filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. None of this is particularly good news if you're an organization like the National Retail Federation, whose mission is to advance the interests of the retail industry through advocacy, communications, and education. For over a century, the National Retail Federation has represented the retail sector standing up for those people and policies and ideas that help retail thrive. And within those hundred years, there's probably never been a time when standing up for retail in the face of an invisible foe, the COVID-19 virus, has been so difficult. For someone like Jill Dvorak, the Vice President of Content and Retail Strategy at the NRF, managing the strategic development and delivery of relevant content for all NRF platforms, this has probably been a challenge of a career. Jill oversees a team responsible for bringing the retail content to life. But in the current crisis, you might just say she's been helping keep retail alive as her key focus. She's probably had to develop some Wonder Woman-like powers over the past few months, and so I've invited Jill to talk with us about retail, about the COVID crisis, and leading into a changed retail future, where her job may not just mean providing relevant information in support of retailers, but also helping them navigate and understand what relevancy means in the face of change for an emerging guest whose ideas around shopping have fundamentally changed. Jill is someone who spent 25 years in the retail design space and is very intimately tied to retail and shopping and everything that it means in terms of our cultural relevancy. This has been a really difficult time for retail and hospitality and a number of other things where people gather in social groups. So I really welcome you here to talk about this change and some of the things that are happening and trends pre and post COVID and what it might all mean for retail going forward in these times of unprecedented upheaval. So Jill, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, David. Let's talk about retail trends. And and what I'd like to do is talk about retail trends prior to the COVID world, because I, I, having spent 25 years as a retail architect, uh, have found that particularly of interest. Um, But before we even get there, maybe what we can do is take a moment to help our listeners fully understand what the National Retail Federation is and what its mandate is. Yes. Thank you so much for this opportunity, uh, firstly. So the National Retail Federation is the largest 
association that represents retail. Retail, little known fact, employs 52 million people in the, in the US. So that is the largest employment sector after the government. So when something happens to retail, it really happens to the country. So what NRF's role is, is to not only advocate on behalf of retailers, small, medium, and large, but also ensure that the retailers have a place to go for continuing education, ensuring you know, the right type of professional networking can happen, and ensuring that you know, all boats rise. Um, so really, we're, we're here to kind of help the industry as a whole. And your role within that is about providing or creating and making available content, but help me understand what that encompasses. Absolutely. So I came to NRF almost three years ago by way of being a retailer, a recovering retailer. I don't think you're ever out of retail once you're in it. You know when you know Thanksgiving comes, you are either hunkering down to work Black Friday, Cyber Monday from your computer or you're you know in store. You never you never lose that kind of passion for being involved with with customers right there. So when I came to NRF, it was really first to manage a few of our executive communities, to manage the chief digital officers. So those are the people in charge of the frontline experiences that you touch and engage with online. Then it was also the chief marketing officers, so people responsible for getting the you know ads out both virtual you know both digital as well as physical ads so from there it grew into programming content for those audiences and since digital as we've seen pre-covid and now you know moving forward digital is one of the major growth engines for this industry and with that we have now seen that content fit for the digital audience and digital natives is really content for the retail industry. So I've moved into a role that now oversees the education on our stages. So unfortunately, those stages right now are all virtual, but we will get back to the day where we will be in person again. And some of those events are over 40,000, close to 45,000 people in person. And some of those events are a few hundred executives getting together to discuss, you know, really the best way to implement, you know, card not present technology or something a little more specific. One of the largest shows I know is the, the big show, which is New York, right? Which is, yeah. um, that's the 45,000 plus people. Um, I've had the good fortune to be a speaker there once or twice, which is great. But walking that trade show floor oh, is- Bring your know, orthotic Plan shoes. a couple of days, right? Yeah. <laughs> So that will go virtual in 2021? Yeah. So this January, we just uh, announced pretty recently that we will go virtual for this year in January, um, both for you know the safety of the retailers, the booth providers, uh, as well as obviously employees and any attendees. So we will be doing a virtual show with content and some expo pieces. And then we will be back in person, hopefully, by June, uh, June 6th, 7th and 8th in 2021. So the hope right. is by delaying a few months, you know, there's, there's the demand and people really want to get together. But there's just no good way to do that right now in New York City with 45,000 people. Right. Well, I've been taking advantage of the uh, 
the CEO sessions that you've been doing the on the retail online. leadership been, series. Yeah, oh, they've excellent. been great. Thank you. No, they, they really yeah. have been great. And so that's part of your world. Yes. 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 No, so okay, that good. is part of our world is, you know, there, when you say retail people, you know, very clearly can kind of think of maybe a target or a Walmart or a mall, sure. but retail is by definition at national retail federation, a, pretty much any business that is transacting with a customer. We also own NCCR, which is the national council for chain restaurants. So we do quite a lot of restaurant, grocery, um, all the way up to the luxury goods in terms of retail. Sure. I know I listened to one uh, with Chris Nassetta, who was a CEO oh, of Hilton yes. a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And so, and I have always thought, you know, having now spent 25 years in the retail space, shifted over to the hospitality world in the last five years, uh, looked at hospitality and said, guys, you know, y'all should be looking across the street to the retail space because there is something really interesting when companies yeah. like Shinola and West Elm and those kinds of companies begin to create hotels. Yes. But the hotel industry hasn't quite yet figured out how to leverage that amazing way to connect to guests um, that the retail space has, you know, and the frequency of change that the retail world goes through completely outstrips the hospitality space, which I think is really behind. And I think probably therefore in, in the challenge in terms of keeping up with an emerging guest. Leading into the end of 2019, what, what were some of the trends that you were seeing that the NRF was beginning to really focus on uh, up to the end of last year? Yeah, last year, you know, there are always buzzwords for the year. Uh, last year, one of the main buzzwords was obviously omni-channel, which for people who aren't in the retail zeitgeist, that means anywhere you shop with a brand, uh, whether it's direct with the brand or through another partner, a, you know, a Nordstrom, a Macy's, a department type of store, that your experience is seamless, that that brand knows who you are and can cater to you in any of those formats. Uh, that is really by putting the customer first, omni-channel then follows. Uh, so that was a huge push last year. Lots of integrations need to happen on the back end in order for the front end customer experience to seem seamless. It's only seamless if everything's connected. Now, you know, when you think of how retail has evolved over the past you know, 20, 25 years, there were stores, they started. Then maybe some catalogs, right? So there were two channels, then there was the phone, then you add in the internet, then you add in the chat, then you add in the app. And so all of these channels have been continuing to grow and none of them have really gone away. So what's happened is by, def by definition, there were organic silos that cropped up. Looking at a customer first version is really taking away all of the silos that have been built up from a corporate perspective and figuring out, well, if this person comes to me on their phone, I should know it's the same person who came to me on you know, their computer three weeks ago and not recommend the same product they already bought. So it's about really being a, almost a, like a personal or a virtual shopper. Like what would you want if you had the best experience in a store where this person knew you in and out, your best friend, what would they recommend to you and how would they follow your shopping behaviors? So that can only be done with good data. It can only be done with clean data and it can only be done with good technology. Um, so all of that put together is something that retailers really were all getting behind. 
So I've always been fascinated. And I think we started talking about this omni-channel experience, gosh, you know, literally uh, in the early 2000s, right? Because you're right, up until the, probably the early 2000s, there was one place to shop uh, or two, maybe, like you said, catalog and store. And then, of course, the world of online shopping, the e-com world comes in and the it had been developing in the late 90s, but really, I think, hit stride and a lot of excitement around it in the early 2000s. Then there was the crash because everyone who thought they could sell anything was going to a dot-com platform. But I've always maintained that if we are still today talking about an omni-channel experience, I still think there's some sense that you're working within those verticals. And that to, to continue to use that sort of terminology, this is my own point of view, um, I think continues to reinforce that customers do shop across those verticals or in within those transactional areas in segmented and separate ways. Whereas I don't think they do. I think they, they we know this, right? They'll stand in the store, they'll access the app and they'll buy it from Amazon, right? So that's what they do. So really to me, I think about four years ago, I began to shift to just omni-experience. And can you maintain the brand experience across those platforms? And it doesn't really matter, I think, in the end so much where they actually buy the thing, right? Right. Yeah, it shouldn't. Yeah. In a, tr in a true kind of customer first way, the company, the brand, the retailer does not care where the transaction happens. They care that you were able to transact in the way you wanted to transact. But you're exactly right. If I am, you know, standing in Target and I pull up an app, I should be pulling up the Target app, right? Because they can tell me what aisle that item is that I want to see. And they can tell me how many are left. And they can tell me if there is a warranty available or any of the extra information, the ratings and reviews. Do I need batteries with this? Instead of having to look at the teeny tiny writing on the you know box, I know everything I might need to know with either a QR code or by typing in the item number. Uh, it's, it's really it's kind of the best of both worlds. On a physical shelf, you don't have room, right? You only have so high you can go, so far out you can go. You need walking room and you need the ability to kind of push carts and everything. Well, what digital has that physical doesn't is unrestricted real estate. So anything and everything you want to put online, I'm not recommending this is done. However, there are ways and categorizations and um, you know, ways to do this from a tech perspective mm -hmm. where it doesn't all load at once, that you can store social proof, you can store videos, demos, you know, extended information, sizing, colors, how do I wash this? All of that information can live there and make the in-person experience better. You know, the showrooming that happens, it, you know, it will happen to a degree, but it is really up to the retailer to take the customer into an experience where my first thought is not, oh, is this a dollar cheaper, you know, on Amazon versus standing in Barnes and Noble. If I'm in Barnes and Noble, chances are mm -hmm. I want the book and I want it now. Um, and I don't want to wait even two days, which is by all means still a miracle that things show up everywhere as they do in a day or one or two. You know, the, the recency and frequency of shopping is when you're in the store, that conversion is always better than online or on the phone or on chat. The in-person conversion still is hard to beat. I agree with you. I think um, I have always believed that Amazon has done a fantastic job at commoditizing everything, right? Yeah. I can literally buy lumber and I can buy, what did I buy recently? Stuff to get rid of ants in my house or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I could literally, I mean, from food, and it's been great, you know, during yeah. this, this past couple of months to be able to do that. But that if that is the case, 
there are two things I think that evolve out of that. One is that I think it puts pressure on all retailers to begin to be able to sell out a category because they'll say, well, uh, if I don't provide it, someone else is going to. So I maybe I'm adding categories into my mix that I might not have ever had before. Right. Um, or maybe so shouldn't for, be in, right? Yeah, maybe you're going too broad, right? right? As opposed to going deeper, exactly, from a merchandise well, assortment. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. I've always had a, you know, my angst of the retail space has been over-assorted and over-stored. Yeah. And coming to the world of retail design from a merchandising side, um, yep. I have always been very mindful about the idea of how many units do you really need to sell, sell the idea, sell the product, you know, and, and, and is that generally just a disincentive to actually engage in the shopping experience because it's just overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, so I think you got the, the world of, of buying online and I think that helps um, to satisfy those commodity purchases. And I think the second thing is, is that it likely really enhances the necessity for if I'm going to leave my house and come to the store and put that commitment into it, certainly now more than ever because I'm going at risk. I'm yeah. putting myself in, in potentially in, in harm's way um, with this virus, that you had better make it worth my while. Absolutely. And that has been the number one thing we have seen from a retail response post, you know, during and post this COVID pandemic, uh, unbelievable amounts of retailers pivoted within weeks that did not have buy online, pick up in store, or you know the the BOPIS term you might have heard, and within weeks got it live. Now, if that were you know regular days, easily six nine months to roll it out, cross functional teams and beta tests and on and on and on. But this was truly sink or swim time. And, you know, people like Tractor Supply, um, their relatively new CEO, Hal Lawton, uh, was talking on our retail leadership series about how in two weeks they had buy online, pick up in store live. And then four weeks later had 24 hour delivery. Now, Tractor Supply is in very typically rural areas. So to deliver in 24 hours from one of their stores to have the assortment, to have that visibility online of what is in store and have it delivered, that is, I mean, now it's table stakes for them, but before it was a nice to have. So that is really interesting because it begs the question, if they could get it done in two weeks, what were they waiting for in the previous two years yeah, <laughs> or, or, or more where that service, it seemed to be natural. I go to pick up my groceries now at uh, curbside. Yeah. Never did that before, but you're right. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that, that my preferred right. grocer in my area had that service, but what, what do you think the challenges were or the resistance was to not providing those services in the past, but boom, all of a sudden two weeks were done. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Part of it was they didn't have to do it to survive, right? So by fine tuning and making incremental changes to all of the other systems, they were constantly iterating and getting better. But to stop doing everything else, pivot and focus just on one thing that you don't know necessarily would always work, that's risky. In this case, it was risky not to do it. So mm -hmm. it was risky for both, you know, what we, what were deemed, you know, by, by the government as essential and non-essential retailers. They had to do something to continue selling. Even non-essentials, you know, some restaurants, things like that at first, 
they were allowed to deliver, but they couldn't have people in the restaurant. They would have gone under without that. So right. everybody was pivoting in ways to continue to bring in, obviously, you know, revenue and, and customers. But without the need, the urgent need, I think it was a matter of you. I can't count the number of companies that have, I've talked to that have two, three year business plans. But nobody had COVID in their plans, not even right. a week before. So by having the flexibility to flex and do that in an agile way, those are the companies, honestly, that are winning right now. Uh, you did see, you know, Walmart, Target, they had those, um, a lot of grocery stores had those capabilities already. But what they didn't have is thousands of workers to staff them. They didn't have a supply chain of, you know, 5x food coming in. So their issues were going backwards in the supply chain to figure that out and to move, you know, to push everything forward. I mean, I talked to one grocer who said they hired, what is it, it was 3,000 people just for those runners of groceries to cars, runners of, you know, making sure the contactless payment could happen. And that was within the first three weeks. And that's, I mean, you know, so obviously unemployment numbers are you know, terrible, but there were these bright spots uh, and there were these really humane moments when we stopped and were able to really talk to members, people like Kroger and Target, they were open the whole time. They mm -hmm. released their playbooks of how to be open safely, how to reopen safely if you weren't open. I don't know that those types of honesty and authentic you know, industry sharing would have happened years ago. But now in order to survive in terms of, you know, both from a food, you know, kind of Maslow's, hier Maslow's hierarchy, we all had to kind of bond together to get food, shelter, et cetera. And mm -hmm. it was a really nice, unfor unfortunately, you know, situation but there was a silver lining to seeing the industry come together to see the industry help each other and continue to help each other um, by, you know, many companies raised all of their uh, minimum wage rates uh, without, you know, obviously any government interaction just because they felt it was the right thing to do. There were many bonus programs um, given out just again, these people are putting their lives, you know, somewhat in danger, more so than those of us sitting at home asking for things to be delivered to us. And the companies felt that they should be rewarded. So that was really, really uplifting and kind of encouraging to see that those frontline, our CEO calls them the frontline first responders, you know, yeah. and, and they, and they were, they kept, they kept a lot of the economy going. Sure. I think part of that idea of the, the you know, pick up curbside or, and I'm grateful, uh, and I think you're right. These are silver linings, equally in the or in the hospitality space, for wow. example. Um, biosafety now is a big deal, right? And let's face it, um, most people would say that hotel rooms could have used, you know, a, a fix to its, you know, in-room cleanliness programs, right? 
I would, I, I know I've said this before on other podcasts, you know, when we traveled with my, my boys and my wife would say, don't, get, get off the carpet, get, get off the carpet. You don't know what's on that carpet, you know, because literally you don't know what's on that carpet. But I think that, so I think that, yeah, I think these things are, are part of the silver linings, as you said. But I think the idea of the, the buy online, pick up in store or curbside now, those are relevant because they're immediate responses to an existing situation that if you don't do it, you're done, right? Yep. What about this idea uh, about what relevant means, do you think, aside from those things, the biosafety and those things that we need to do, okay. what have you been hearing in the industry that is a definition or a, a, some, some thinking around the idea of relevancy of my brand as a retailer to an emerging cohort of guests who is not just suffering from this immediate crisis, but who is a very different kind of shopper? My 18-year-old my is yeah. a very different kind of shopper. He literally buys things online from the UK. He wears them for a short period of time, sells them on a website called Grailed to somebody else. And products flow through his life like every other thing that happens around him. Ephemeral, not lasting. My dad would straighten nails, you know, to reuse them again. I don't straighten <laughs> nails. That's a fantastic analogy. Yes. Right? Literally. <laughs> We had a piece of railroad tie in our basement with a hammer and he'd straighten the nail out and make sure it was good. That idea of relevancy, can you sort of put some thinking around what your retail members have begun to express as what will be relevant to that group? It's a great question. And, you know, I'd be remiss if not to mention also kind of the social unrest and the social justice issues that have been going on because during all of this reaction to COVID, brands have also had to figure out how do they come out and speak about race relations issues and still be relevant. So that mm -hmm. has been, you know, it was already an issue and, but not, you know, I, I don't know an exact percentage, but I would say a, a small minority of brands really had come out um, ahead of that issue before. Now, there was, you know, there, there have been many of these kind of, for lack of a better word, holidays, there have been, you know, Blackout Tuesday, and all of these days where, you know, brands are saying, don't buy from us, don't buy from us on this day, go buy from black owned businesses, or, you know, on this day, uh, in order to, you know, remain relevant, we are donating money to XYZ. Uh, we will mm -hmm. match your donations. We will match mm -hmm. your purchase. So there are all of these ways that brands have typically been involved, but this just hit a whole other ether of, you know, pretty much any brand out there, both social media as well as their own, typically CEOs sending out memos and messages to their customer base. I mean, the amount of emails we would get, you know, in the last couple of weeks, just really an encouraging sign of support for both, you know, diversity in all walks of life, but also understanding, you know, what can we do and what actions are they taking to hold themselves accountable? But further into kind of the relevancy aspect, customer behavior has really changed. So say you were a, you know, a grocer and you knew how your customers shopped, you know, they, t they might shop the outside if they're, you know, super health conscious, they shop, you know, the, the produce and the freezer and the uh, refrigerated sections, and they don't go in the middle, you know, where the, the packaged goods might be. Well, now what's happening is they're not coming in the store. There are no more, oh, I'm going to add some graham crackers and marshmallows just in the off chance I want to make s'mores. The impulse purchases are out. 
what is happening, at least in person, what is happening is if they're not going in store, that upends end caps and that upends all of those things that those brands have paid great dollars for. They have to shift those dollars online. Uh, then you have people who have never picked up groceries, my parents included, they've never ordered online for groceries. They're doing that and they are a different breed. <laughs> they are not the online shopper. My mom returned one apple with a teeny tiny bruise. Can you imagine being somebody standing in, you know, one, you know, one apple has a bruise. I want to go change it out. Sure, lady. Okay. Like that's not, you can't do that at scale. So as customer behavior changes and these companies pivot to offer the types of services customers want, you also have to build in these fail safes. So now you have people walking in your store with apples and putting them back. Well, that's clearly not ideal in COVID times. So what are these new ways that you can stay relevant to the customer and market to them? So maybe it would be an email saying, hey, if you don't like your piece of fruit or whatever it is, take a picture of it, throw it away, we'll refund you the money. You know, those types of thinking about what the customer wants before they've asked for it. Those are the companies that have con continued to do incredibly well um, and message them. And at the end of the day, it's always customer service. Um, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. almost every company changed their return policy very early on because nobody was going to the post office. Nobody's going back to, to ship goods back to, you know, or even to come in store to bring it back, buy online, return in store. So there were a lot of retailers that changed the return policies. Well, what do you do when you actually get the goods? You have goods that maybe were cross-contaminated, right? How long could COVID particles live on clothing? What do you do with that clothing? Do you put it back in circulation? Do you quarantine it? So there were all of these processes that retailers had never thought of. But all of a sudden now, if I'm going to buy a bathing suit online, I want to know that nobody returned that bathing suit. So again, by messaging what I don't even know I need as a customer, by messaging that, by getting ahead of that message, they've proven to me, they've thought about me, they've thought about my safety, they will get my money. So mm -hmm. I think the relevancy is by thinking through the customer experience, again, customer first, and those are the people um, and the companies that are really able to win and keep those customers now and then for however long this goes on. Which, depending on who you talk to, could be three to five years, or the very oh, interesting, likely, yeah, no, right, a very interesting um, fact. I was listening to a podcast earlier today that was talking about exactly this issue about how long will this be with us, and uh, they are someone likened it to the idea of malaria. You know, malaria has been around for a long time. We haven't got a cure for it now. That's a parasite, so it's a slightly different thing. But there is, because of the way this particular virus works there is a very good likelihood that even a vaccine would maybe only be a temporary fix and you'd have to be going back for boosters frequently. So we might likely live with this for a long time yet to come. Yeah. So not discounting the, the need for biosafety, which I think is, is clearly the yeah. message of the day, right? Everyone's trying to figure out how to do it differently. Yeah. Victoria's Secret, as I understood, an American Eagle Outfitter, fitter, I think I read a couple months ago now, they were taking things like key item presentation tables, panty bra tables, those things that you typically see with hundreds of units on them. Well, that's not the way they're merchandising anymore. 
right. I think that's great uh, from a number of points of view. One is great because, well, they're taking that those units off the floor and they're keeping them safe in a stock room someplace. But it's also helping us with the over assortment challenge, yep. which going back to our <laughs> right. Like now I don't have to shop like 500 units on a table, which is a maintenance nightmare yeah. anyway. So I think that's another silver lining. Yeah. Well, and it also helps from a shrinkage, a sure. loss or asset prevention. Um, it also, depending on how the stores are staffed, you then actually would interact potentially with an associate. I, you know, I don't know very many associates where you look at them and you're like, no, I think that's a terrible idea. You typically, yeah. because you're all there. It's it's a fun experience. Show me this. Sure. I didn't see that. Let's look at that. More time in store. There's a, a level of social engagement that shopping should be fun, you know, and that's what right now is kind of hard to figure out. Are people looking for an experience? Are, right now, I think mostly it's a transactional experience. I want to get in. I want to get out. I don't want to wear a mask for too long. I want to make sure that I, you know, I'm safe. I'm not touching my face while I've touched other items. But going back to an experience, I think when customers feel safe about being in stores, you know, indoors, outdoors, however it may be, that is kind of that precipice where if you feel safe, taken care of, protected, then that lingering or that emotional side of shopping can come back. But until then, it's safety, you know, in and out. That's it. As you were talking, I was thinking about the opportunities here, um, if we're going to look at, because I do think there are opportunities in any of these crises. Think about that experience uh, change or the, the shift of a different paradigm in, I'm going to use Victoria's Secret as an example. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're, you're, you're selling buy two, get one free or whatever. I, mean, I, I don't know what your margins are on, on things like that, but you always seem to be on promotion for those small sort of items, uh, underwear, yeah. panties, bras, that kind of stuff. But um Think of now that how the shopping experience shifts when you say, customer says, I like that style. Does it come in more colors? Why, yes, it does. And they now have a tray of all the different colors in the assortment. And it, it all of a sudden it goes from, wow, I'm buying that for like 10 bucks when I do the math. But the experience shifts to something that's a little bit more luxurious in terms of its yeah. presentation, where you'd see that in, in a jeweler where they put them on the tray. I could think of all kinds right. of ways where you could leverage this to shift the experience to really upsell an emotional aspect to this. Um, never mind the value. I think the value is yeah. a great selling point. When you, when you sort of get rid of the idea that I'm getting a good deal, if I feel great about how that product all of a sudden now is elevated, I feel good yeah. about that. I feel like I'm getting something really great. And, and custom. I think I've picked sure. my colors now. It's not just anyone can pick them on the table. Yeah. Maybe no one else has p- picked that yellow and that purple, you know, and that there is, there's an absolute psychological dopamine hit when you get something you want, you know, and when you see it and there's this like hunter gatherer awakening you know, when you're kind of going through things. But to your point, if there are too many choices or too many people around or, you know, it's not it's not pleasing to the eye, then it's not going to be right for everybody. I mean, there are the people who will go hunt and peck in those piles in, you know, maybe discount stores and they want the deal. But a lot of people want experience. You know, it's it's about the shopping experience that is right for the person. You know, I I love a deal, but am I going to spend three hours getting a deal? 
probably not. I feel like my time might be worth, you know, an extra $10 to not hunt and peck and be next to three people throwing elbows. That just doesn't sound like fun, you know, but there are those people that really get into that. So it is, it's about knowing the type of customer you want or you have, and then curating an experience to kind of go after that and to make sure that it is, it's malleable enough to fit in this unbelievably strange time that we're in right now. This will bring me to this idea of uh, experience and how we value experience or how we, I think in the retail space have traditionally seen some of these things that we would, uh, we would quantify as being uh, relevant to whether or not that thing that you're doing is important to your guest. And I have had a number of experiences where I've tried to bring sort of innovation to the marketplace or to a guest room design or things like that. And, and the developer or the retailer will say, well, tell me whether or not I'm going to make an extra two bucks on that innovation. And then I'd say, gosh, I don't know, because I, I don't think your spreadsheet um, has <laughs> columns for return on innovation, return on creativity, return on emotion, return on experience, return on digital. I don't think yeah. yours has it, but I'll tell you what, if we're going to talk about an experience economy, those things are going to be the things that actually in the end might be way more, uh, carry way more strength or influence than the value, the number you've got on the sticker price. And I don't think that we, we traditionally think that way. So that's, I think, a question of shifting paradigms for leadership. What do you think? I think you're right. And it's whether it's a, a rental economy, an experience economy, I mean, you have to know, again, who is the customer? You know, to your point about your son, I highly doubt he would shop a brand or a company that had diametrically opposing viewpoints. No. It's just It just wouldn't happen. But do I know all of the brands' viewpoints that I shop? I, I don't. But I, so that's a generational difference. It's also, you know, I have two young kids and a dog and a full-time job difference. <laughs> but it is, it's really interesting to kind of step back and figure out what is important to them. You know, at the end of the day, you know, last year, a, a really big trend to your earlier question was the value, whether it was sustainability whether it was, you know, beliefs in their company, those were really trending. And then COVID hits and it's, you know, everybody's kind of left thinking, well, does sustainability still matter? I have this sustainability project. Yes, right. it still matters. And it still matters to many customers. But in order for customers to know that, they have to talk about those values. Sure. And so many of these companies have these brand values that just aren't, put out there. And I think that is, I can't tell you how many questions we get about well, how, how are people competing against Amazon? What are you doing instead, you know, or, or any of the big, the big box retailers by, by having values that you can carve out, believe in and live by. I mean, the amount of kind of smaller companies that Dr. Bronner's or Chobani yogurts or um, some of these brands, they are, I don't want to say political engines, but they have beliefs and they mm -hmm. have employees. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are employee owned that they, they have real passion there for what they are doing. It's more than making a product. It's making a belief system, making the world a better place from their corner. And I, you know, that is a value add that Amazon can't bring. 
you know, how do you get that message out is the question. There's no question to me that when I own a piece of the pie or yep. yogurt bucket, whatever, <laughs> As it may be. Uh, and I, I don't just do that. I, I just don't mean that it's a financial sort of reward that I get for having sort of a part ownership, but I inherently become more invested in the thing if I'm a part owner in the thing. And yeah. I think one of the, the, talking about this younger customer, one of the things that has been very clear about my sons who are both musicians and have always played in the black American music sort of history, jazz, otherwise known as jazz. Yeah. And so their, their affinity for black American cultural issues, the whole idea of institutionalized racism, they are totally on top of that. We were reading all these books that everyone now is reading, like literally a, you know, a year or so ago before it was as front facing as it is these days. But one of the things that they've said is they have dropped brands that they were connected to. My son has dropped um, a drum seat company because of the things that this CEO said in the wake of the George Floyd murder. Yeah. Um, totally abhorrent. And and they, boom, in a second will say, we're done. I'm not buying for them. Don't go to that you know, home hardware store. Don't go to that other retailer. Forget about this drum company. And they're very, very quick to say yeah. they are not in step with what I believe is true and is important for me as a person, but also this whole other group of people. Right. And I think their affinity for that and their voice that they've had can shift uh, a lot of companies. What they've been most disgusted by was those companies who seems to have come out now with this message because, well, everyone's doing it. But where were you in the right. beginning, way before anything happened? Where was this visible as part of your platform yeah. that we could say, yeah, man, you got it. You're, you're on the right track and I will line up behind you and buy your products because you support the things that I think are you know, in need of support. And I think there's been a lot of bad, there's values and bandwagons issues, you know, people jumping Absolutely. on now where all of a sudden it's really cool to come out talking about Black Lives Matter, but you would have never heard it on their platform before. It, it's such an interesting line because I've done, you know, some research now, obviously, into a lot of retail brands about, you know, where, where are they on race relations and executive you know, diversity and things like that. And I have been shocked to find shocked only because it was never talked about. But there are a lot of companies who've been tracking this for 20 plus years. But what's so interesting is that was not a marketing message because it, to them, it was something they should be doing. And it was in the background, very similar to a lot of sustainability messages. And, you know, you saw absolutely the bandwagon, you know, posts and everybody wants to believe they're good and just, hopefully everybody wants to believe they're good and just. But what was so interesting is which brands have decided not to say anything that they've been doing this for years, quietly, giving money to, you know, projects in the background, tracking diversity, um, not promoting people because they weren't diverse. I mean, there were very uh, specific things done. And I, I was really interested slash impressed to see that that is not always, it's not a, it doesn't have to be a headline, right? And a lot of companies mm -hmm. chose to kind of sit back and not talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, obviously not as many as we could be uh, better in this situation, but it really, I think it, it's, it's been, it's been very eye-opening for a lot of, a lot of companies and it's been very eye-opening for a lot of employees to, yeah. you know, it's not just where, what you buy, it's where you work. 
too, to your point of, you know, your sons and, and the drum seat, but it's yeah. what brands do you represent and where do you work or where do you, um, where you give money? And, you know, I think that that demographic shift is taking over. I think it's getting older. You know, you see social platforms still aging up, you know, Facebook, I think the median age now is upwards of, you know, 50, which is, you know, when it started, it was a college, you know, that it was 18 or 19. So as social media ages increase, as the influence of Gen Z and millennial, there, there's a stat, and I, I should pull this up in just a second, but it is, it's unbelievable the influence a millennial and a Gen Z has on a boomer, Gen X, and Y dollar. It's, I believe 100%. it was almost a one-to-one. It's, they might not have the dollar, but they influence so clearly the dollar spent by many of those other cohorts that it's, it's impossible to ignore. And, you know, be, be, everything's becoming politicized. And it's, it's a lot for companies who are just trying to kind of stay in business right now. It's a lot to add to their plate. But I think what it does is it, is it elevates uh, the dialogue around what a company stands for. And I think that's important, you know, yeah. um, beyond the product. I think that that's sort of there's a sense of meaning or purpose that's behind the company. And I think I said before to someone the other day, I said, you know, when people have stopped filling their shelves, they begin to look for something else when their shelves are stocked. And the, I think they begin to look for meaning and purpose and something that is righteous, you know, about the things that they, they you attach themselves to. to. Yeah. 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 It's, there's an emotional attachment yeah, to it in some way. So then what then do you think maybe are, are I don't know, uh, two, three uh, of these major key factors in acquiring and maintaining these new guests as they, as they come into the marketplace? I mean, I think what we saw the past couple of months is just this digital acceleration. I mean, you know, we talked through buy online, pick up in store, curbside happening so quickly. That might have taken years and it took weeks. So accelerating, really just stepping on the gas from this digital acceleration point, uh, you know, it expanded. It really, it just enlarged the pie of digital shoppers. You know, you, you aged up in terms of people who weren't doing that before. You increased your, your pie. Um, in order to keep those, it's, you know, continual messaging. It's continual. Safety is still obviously going to be paramount. The amount of emails I get in every header says, you know, you might have slower uh, shipping times because we're taking care of our employees due to COVID. You might have, you know, slower shipping times because the post office is overloaded. Whatever that messaging is, it's showing they've thought about my experience, they care about my experience, and they are putting it there. So they are managing expectations. So I think mm -hmm. continually managing those expectations, both from a digital acceleration perspective, as well as when you go in store. Uh, one thing I've seen that's been really exciting is companies and people who... I would not have thought would have gotten into augmented reality and these kind of visual tools that have. So, you know, Sephora um, and some of the makeup companies that were out there early with, you know, you could try on makeup remotely from your home. That was always really exciting and neat. And that's, that seems like it makes perfect sense. Who wants to try on 19 lipsticks? Like your lips are going to fall off. Not fun. But to do that digitally, that's great. But now you see 
more than just furniture companies. You see, um, you know, there was, it was a fence company I was looking at the other day and they had take, you know, take my camera outside and they were going to put the fence in for me and show me what it looked like. There were, you know, there are, uh, I need them by the way, right. I also do their name. So all of these new applications where, why did they do that? Well, they don't have to send somebody out to show you the three types of wood. They don't have to send an employee either in your house or outside. You know, they're thinking creatively about ways, maybe it's to cut costs, but frankly, I am way more into that company that I know what their fence is going to look like, as opposed to now, maybe I'm going to get a fence for $100 cheaper, but I don't know exactly that it's going to look like what they promised me. So, I mean, there are these ways of really helping the conversion process from this digital acceleration. There are ways of helping the customer experience. And ultimately, I think it's just, it's kind of messaging that you have choice and you have, you know, you have a voice and they know that you matter, you know, kind of this reverse loyalty club, like they are loyal to you so that you can be loyal back. Um, It's just a different way of looking at kind of customer first. And those, those companies and those new verticals with technology, it's really interesting to watch. Let me ask you this question about going to stores now, because granted, some have opened, some have closed again, uh, some are opening in, in limited ways. But assuming people are going to go and they're going to get to stores, I think so, uh, this other podcast I was listening to said, you know, we're going to be wearing masks for years. Uh, just let's assume it. If you're a mask person, if you get out of the yeah. political you know, sphere and say, <laughs> I'm just, I'm doing the right thing by not either spreading it if I don't have it or, or, you know, or, uh, yeah. getting it, getting it from you. But think of for a minute about interactions in the store between uh, a customer and a salesperson slash associate and how they would typically interact. If we go to an all mask world, both of us are wearing masks. Much of that communication that happens in a store in those face-to-face worlds is done. I'm looking at your face now on video and I can tell by the way your facial expressions and things like that, whether you're happy, sad, angry, confused, disgusted, whatever. But now, <laughs> yeah. now I'm gonna close off, close off everything from the eyes down where we learn and are able to to intuit the intent of the other through those facial expressions and body language. Now we're in a world where you're wearing you're wearing masks. How do I know? How do how does the associate and the brand maintain those relationships at a face-to-face level when half my face is covered? It's a phenomenal question and I, you know I have two two lines of thought on this. One, I have not been carded since COVID, you know, I've walked into liquor stores or grocery stores to buy, you know, wine or whatever, and I haven't been carded. So I'm very upset by that because all they can see are my eyes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh God, I look so old. They don't even card me from my eyes. But I think what, you know, joking aside, it really, it goes to a theme I've seen in other channels is the kind of the authenticity. So Right now, corporations can't do photo shoots, right? I mean, how are you doing photo shoots with socially distanced? How are you doing um, merchandise or catalog shoots? How are you able to do a lot of these, you know, commercials and things like that? So what a lot of these brands are doing is they're going to their customers and either asking or, you know, using old user-generated content. So they're using the customers to kind of be the advocates for the brand. So if your customer in store is, you know, only visible from the eyes up, 
it is a whole new world to read that customer and to figure out what they want. But by using the authenticity that the kind of the brand is going towards of, you know, we're figuring this out together. Look, this person, you know, in uh, Minnesota loves our s'mores sticks and this person in, you know, California loves our s'mores sticks. They weren't paid for this. Maybe you'll like our s'mores sticks too. I think it gives the brand an opportunity to have that store associate relate to them on a one-on-one -on -one level now. It's everyone is at the same level. We're all experiencing the product together. It's not, you know, these glitzy overproduced ads telling us how to experience the product. We're all experiencing it from a human level. Uh, you know, some of the best social media that's come out of retailers lately has been the, the user-generated content. It's Mm -hmm. free, first of all. So that's great for retailers. You can save a little money there. But in addition, people are actually using the products. That's not influencers using the product. It is actual customers or kids using the products. And you just haven't seen that in a long time in ads. You know, we all remember the life cereal, the Mikey likes it. It's going back to the Mikey days, you know, where like the kids are the kids are the voices. Actually, Mikey actually hated everything. Just, just to make that, just like, give it to Mikey. Cereal. He hates. Yeah, exactly. he hates everything. <laughs> you know, this does remind me of. Um, I'm on the editorial advisory board for VMSD magazine, and I remember, must have been at least five years ago, uh, we were all uh, in a post uh, international retail design uh, conference. Um, board meeting, and we were talking about exactly this issue that, yeah. you know, our users are, are, our customers are generating great content. And I said, you know, guys, um, you might just discover that it's perfectly okay to have really like shabby, you know, handheld stuff created by your actual guest or your customer rather than these hyper polished, yeah. you know, beautifully well produced shoots. And well, lo and behold, now, you know, we're seeing, you know, more and more. I, I don't say that to say that I was prescient, but I, I guess the idea is that it does go to this question of what becomes relevant for the guest is the things that they create yep. because they created it. Yep. And because they created it, it's inherently more about them. If it's inherently more about them, it's, it's just more interesting rather than saying, oh, we're going to create these things in a corporate headquarters somewhere, push it to market and hope you like it. Because if you don't, well, come back next season. We'll have yeah, yellow. We'll have a new one whatever. next year. Right. <laughs> right. That's... That's the world my kids live in. They, they were, live in a world where their ability to create digital stories with their devices directly influences their expectations about how they interact with a brand. So that if there are brands who are doing that, uh, where they're creating content. I think the brand who leverages that user created content or that guest created content is really sort of tapping into something that's really important, you know, with this cohort for whom that's every day. Yeah. That's they're, what they do every day. They're in the brand zeitgeist then, you know, they are exactly right. They're living the brand. It's it's what you want and what people what brands have been paying for in influencers and ambassadors, but yet you're getting it for free from your customers if you're doing the right things by producing the products and values that they want. So yeah. it is, it's a bit of chicken and egg, you know, how do you get there if you don't have that? Uh, but it's really, it's been really nice and interesting to see that authentic kind of homegrown content. It's, you know, it's like going back to America's funniest videos, you know, it's like who, how can you be upset if you're looking at, you know, something funny or something cute, it's going back to those. It feels, 
that feels real and it feels human. As long as it's not about cat videos <laughs> and and what, what you ate for dinner last night, I think I'm good pretty much with everything else, you know? Um, there is there is an Instagram um, group, I think it's called Good News Media or something like that. And, and they they do such brilliant things where you watch it and go, oh, you know, humans after all, there is goodness out there after all. It is, yeah. That, that's been a lesson to, to fill your feed with good and, you know, different and good has been really, I think, refreshing to, to fill your feed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it means you have to be all Pollyanna about it and say, oh, well, the world, these things aren't happening. I think, you know, there's a balance between those two things. But doesn't it also suggest that companies will have to develop a higher level of EQ? That is great. Emotional yeah. intelligence? So funny. We have this conversation a lot at, at work, IQ versus EQ. And I think the emotional intelligence is there. What isn't always there is taking the social, and they, and they also socially listen, certainly on social. Brands, brands do. They want to hear what customers have to say. What is very hard to do is to take what customers are saying, good, bad, and ugly, and put it back into the production wheel. So how are you changing merchandising, marketing, product development based on that? That's what's hard to do because, as we saw, it might have taken two years to do a curbside implementation project. So that wheel was turning, albeit slowly. So to get something else in there, there was no room in that wheel. You know, it, well, we already have our project planned for two years. So now kind of throwing the playbook out and thinking, what do we have to do to survive? You know, maybe, maybe that's the next marketing question is, do we need to do what we did last year? Or can we throw the playbook out and try these new things to listen to our customer, take their, whether it's, you know, content with their approval or not, but get them into the brand live the brand, you know? Do you hear what you're saying? <laughs> because you'd go, we should just listen to our customer. It's like, oh, right. yeah. You know. I know. However, you would have someone like Steve Jobs says, don't listen to your customer. They don't know what you want. They only know, know what, what you want. want. Absolutely. Right? Until you tell them what they want. I don't think, think that's actually true. I think it, an emerging cohort of guests know exactly what they want. Yeah. And, and they also know what they don't want. I think that's the other thing. So if you listen to what they don't want, and maybe surmise and, you know, kind of work with them to figure out what they do want. Just because what they want doesn't mean they'll pay for it, but they might want it. That's, that is a very, very um, different question you ask them in surveys. What do you want and what are you willing to pay for are very, very different answers. So our COVID crisis is uh, gripped uh, the retail industry, hospitality, like I said, entertainment. I mean, all these different places where people go and where I say brains and brands connect, you know, any of those places where that happens. Um, we've also, unfortunately, seen, uh, you know, it seems like every week, another large, well-known retailer is, is filing Chapter 11, going bankrupt. Yeah. Does this mean that this, that this crisis accelerated what, what was inevitable? Does it mean that these companies just weren't in step and they just got to be so big they couldn't adapt? What's the NRF's sort of view on, on that? No, it's a great question. And, you know, the U.S. as a whole has been consistently and considerably, compared to other countries, overbuilt. So when, you know, we open a store, we open a store with, you know, 300 feet per person. Well, if you open that same store in Germany or France or the UK, it's, it's a fraction of that. 
So we have overbuilt and overexpanded um, in many, many places, both mall-based and non-mall-based, uh, outlet and non-outlet as well. Then you take that with a good amount of financial over-leveraging and valuation, and then you throw a little COVID in the mix, and you know companies that, even companies that were solvent are having trouble right now. So that's, and that's no fault of anyone, right? That's not bad management, that's not bad planning. It is purely a, you know, hopefully once in a lifetime pandemic hitting. Um, but when you match the over leveraging from a financial perspective, the over expansion from a real estate perspective and these 30 year leases, while customer behavior is going up and down and all around and customer needs, that is a recipe for you know, being too big for what, what you have. So you see a lot of stores closing um, many of the mall or, you know, physical locations, but it doesn't necessarily mean the revenue is changing or the profit is changing. So as you know, if you, rather than just keep growing the pie bigger and bigger, a lot of these businesses are, you know, holding relatively steady, growing incrementally with GDP. But when, 20, 30, 40% of that goes online, each store is not doing the same amount of revenue. So by default, you need to right size. Uh, so really some of them are, you know, some of them are, are just haven't kept up with, you know, digital innovations and are, and are going bankrupt and or will close their doors. But a lot of other ones overbuilt need to right size and or need to shore up the technology. Um, you know, many of these stores the, some of the technology is 30 years old, right? You have point of sales, 30 years old. How are you going to get contactless payments when you have a terminal that doesn't even read chips? You need a hardware overhaul, a software overhaul. So, but those are really big capital projects. So if you're not financially solvent for that, you go to a bank, then you're over leveraged that, you know, it's, it was just a really a, a perfect storm for a good number of, um, a good number of retailers. But then what you don't see is all the retail numbers of store openings. So plenty of what started as, you know, we call pure plays started online only have opened many, many brick and mortar stores. So you look at people like, a, you know, Bonobos, Warby Parker, Rothy's, Everlane, all of these were, you know, just popped up a few years ago by, you know, consumer standards, but have not only taken, um, Th that D to C world by storm, but they've opened brick and mortar. So, you know, we get the question a lot, well, is brick and mortar dead? Absolutely not. It is changing and it's being right sized. Um, so I think, you know, this did to your point, accelerate it, but by no means, you know, if you had a store, would you not want to have a physical presence at this point? For a number of years, um, we've been saying the mall is dead. The mall is dead, you know, or the dinosaur is, <laughs> yep. dying again um is it true or is it just like you just said that we're gonna have to find a way to repurpose those enormous you know multi-million square foot yeah. properties yeah i mean it's a different way what yeah why do i need that much room right if you don't have that much inventory is it an experience that's happening in there is it a gym maybe maybe gyms go in there or boutique you know uh, family experiences go in there, but I think they will change shape. The, you know, just getting right-sized, you're not going to change the square footage of a, you know, a big mall-based store. You're not going to 
shrink it, you know, you, that is not worth, is not worth the cost. Uh, you know, there are absolutely strong numbers still in malls. The issue is that the experience level wasn't always there. And so therefore people aren't going. You look, I mean, there are some on the East Coast here, like Arundel Mills and um, some premium outlets. They have, some of them have casinos, some of them have putt-putt and mini golf and movie theaters and, you know, little playgrounds in the middle of it. They are packed constantly. So it needs to really be level set, I think, in terms of the right size. But, you know, again, it's, but that was before the pandemic. The pandemic has fast forwarded all sorts of problems and really brought everything to the surface. Not such a bad thing, to be honest. Right. Uh, no, you know, not such I a bad rip, rip the bandaid off if it's not going to work. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, listen, it wasn't working before. Right. Maybe this is a time for us to rethink, you know. Yes. And, and if you're not, I'll, it's kind of like back in 2008 to 2010. I remember exactly. those were hard years, man, when you were in retail. But I kept on saying to people, listen, okay, it's hard. Got it. Um, and I was in a retail design world where, you know, we just weren't designing any stores. But I said, it's an opportunity. If you're not taking this opportunity to rethink what you're doing, 100%. you may not have another one to come around Absolutely. for a number of years. Well, here we are, you know. And again, I'll be saying, if you're not taking this opportunity, despite the fact that being in the world of uncertainty is so difficult, if you're not continuing to push and be proactive and think about what it means and how to reshape things and what the other side of this looks like. Yeah. Uh, then you're missing a great opportunity. And that's sort of as the buoyancy that I find, or the yeah. way to be buoyant within all of this really depressing other stuff. Is what is yeah? What is the upside? A lot of a lot of corporations have thought about what do retail corporations? What do they do with their corporate offices? Are, do they become experiential showrooms? Do they become? Because maybe we aren't bringing everyone back to work for a long time or ever. You know, nobody. I, I think very few executives would have signed off on the idea that 100% of the workforce, you know, from a corporate perspective could be remote and be mm. as um, effective and as efficient, you know? So what does that look like when you fast forward and you think about, you know, headquarters, that that's, that's a lot of square footage that right now is sitting empty. And what can we do with that? In terms of the leadership of these, these retail companies, um, there, it seems like there's been a resistance uh, up until recently. And then maybe it's just a survival technique. Now they, they've sort of the lights bulbs come on and say, gosh, to survive in this new world, we have to shift. If you had to sort of guess what, what some of the resistance factors were to change prior to this COVID thing, what would you have heard from some of the members saying, well, we, we don't, we're not going to do that because, or what would you have surmised as being some of the issues around this resistance to what seemed to be an inevitable need to change? It's a great question. I mean, part of it is human nature, right? Risk of, you know, adversity, uh, you know, retail, it, it, not to downplay any magic that happens in retail, but it's, it's not rocket science, right? We are, you know, we're an industry where if you have a connection and you have a, um, a product, it's, it's exchanging goods and services at its like brute, you know, level how how do you change how people want those goods and services i think it's been it's been so similar for so long just getting digital to play with the merchandising teams a decade ago was it seemed insurmountable for a long time 
getting store fulfillment to go onto a P&L that didn't go to the store manager, but it went to a digital P&L. Heads were exploding all over corporate America. You know, it's everyone, there was so much incentive by your channel for so long because again, it was this almost this face-to-face, you were incented to sell. Now you have all these new ways of people coming in that want nothing to do with you. And that is, that's scary. I think ultimately there was no real impetus to change because there was no fire burning in many of the companies. Where there were fires, things changed or they didn't and you don't see them anymore. This epidemic I think has really awoken many you know, leaders and team members to the human element of all of this, but also the, the connection. If you don't have that with your customers, you're missing it. If it's a transaction based on value and just a wham, bam, that, that is not loyalty. That is not, you know, any kind of relationship that is able to be uh, captured. The biggest reason for all of the resistance to change, I think is with digital's with the advent of digital, there were always new ways to acquire customers. And if you were smart and agile, you could figure out new platforms to acquire customers for not a terribly high cost. I think what's happening now is you see this consolidation. It's really, you know, it's a Google world, it's a Facebook world, Facebook has Instagram. There's not so many new channels to acquire now. So what you're seeing is these costs, 100% year over year, increase in Facebook and Google costs. How can you keep up with that? Now you have to have a change. You have to think about retaining customers rather than just acquiring customers. So Mm -hmm. otherwise you won't survive. It's true. Uh, Obviously customer retention key attribute brings me around to that question of saying, what are the things that you think are relevant to these emerging guests that will keep them held, you know, as, as guests, it's not the stuff I don't think. No, I think you're right. It's it's the connection and the emotion. But I you know, we can't forget it has to be good product. It has to be, you know, maybe it's the material is recycled. Great. But is the product good? Does it make mm-hmm. my feet sweat? If it does, I'm not gonna wear it no matter how many water bottles I saved, right? We don't we need fewer sweaty feet. Exactly. That's my platform that I'm running on. (laughs) You know, at the end of the day, I mean it still does have to be a good product. But most companies have figured that piece out. Good product, good assortment, good price. Supply chains are, you know, typically working. Um, you know, last year when you asked what was one of the biggest um you know, themes at at the very end of the year, unfortunately, was this huge tariff scare, right? Where the cost of bringing items in from China specifically was going to go up exponentially. And that Mm -hmm. was, that was really frightening. So a good number of companies rushed to bring things in, right? Pre-holiday, pre-January even. Well, what happened in the spring when they're sitting with extra inventory? COVID hits. So now what do they do with extra inventory, less ways of selling it, less customers coming in the store because potentially they've been closed for months. You know, again, it's this hits, the hits are coming. Um, But if you, if there is a relationship built, if there is a authentic self 
the, the, the founder led companies are doing incredibly well right now for that reason. You know, it's, it's, that's the way to make the connection. That's the way to keep the connection. And ultimately mm -hmm. I think that's the way to kind of lead going forward, regardless of getting out of this mess or not, that, that can be your value add going forward. That's great. I was going to ask you then to add on to, I, I wrote agility and the ability to be agile, flexible, trustworthy. Um, can you think of any other attributes of a leader who emerges out of this world? Honest. I think honest, you know, just if, if you don't know what's happening with furloughs or layoffs or things like that, then say that. And you know, but at the same time, you saw a lot of CEOs coming out, you know, Mark Benioff uh, at Salesforce. Uh, I believe it was Brian Cornell at Target. He said, we aren't laying people off for a year. Like, that's not a thing. It's not going to happen. And that is a big statement. I mean, that is that I mean, they're the CEOs. So, you know, conceivably, they're the ones to make it. Um, but what is amazing is that that was what they were putting their stake in. Like, we will, we will move people around, we will figure it out, but I will tell you, work your tails off because you're not going anywhere. And that, that, that lights the fire under employees to work harder to keep their jobs after it, that timeline has expired. Um, so I think honesty and, you know, just ultimately back to that same word, the authentic conversations. Are they scared? Are, you know, people don't want to know that their leaders are, uh, don't know what to do, but they respect when they are told that. There are a lot of people who don't know what they're doing right now and say they are, say they know what they're doing. Um, I think it's, it's nice to have the other angle of it of, you know, look, good ideas can come from anywhere. If you guys have ideas for incremental revenue right now, let me know. Let's, let's work together. And that, that creates a community that will, you know, help your employees be retained. I think you're right. There's a, I remember maybe a month ago, Arnie Sorensen, who was the CEO of um, Marriott did a, had at a, it was a memo, a video memo to the associates and it was very emotional. Yeah. Um, very emotional to, to hear him say that. And while it was difficult to watch because you could see, here's a guy who's been with the company for so many years, feel so, and I know Arnie Sorensen, having worked at Marriott, and that's that's him. He, that's not put on. That's the kind of authentic leadership that he brings to the game. Um, but that was incredibly empower, powerful because you can also realize they're just human. I know. They, they suffer from all the same illnesses. They, 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 the virus does not discriminate. Just because they're making $20 million a year exactly. doesn't mean they're any safer than me. Right. Yeah, does, exactly. Right. The virus does not discriminate. I think that's a really... That's a really salient point because they, they at the same point are dealing with family and sure. fear and, you know, their lives are disrupted just like everybody else's. And I think if you're a conscientious leader, you yeah. do take to heart the idea that you are in some way responsible for the lives of, yeah. of maybe a few or maybe a few hundred thousand. It's a big undertaking, right? Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. You already yeah. were responsible, whether you, whether you realized it, but now you add the health of your employees, the mental health of your employees, and then what if they're scared to come back to work? Then what do you yeah. do? You know, it just, the liability and all of that, it is, it would be very hard to be, you know, a public big CEO right now. I mean, it, it does. I mean, you really, you have to give them empathy because it's, it is hard. This is, there is no playbook for this right now. You know, there isn't. So uh, it's, 
it's all it's all challenging. But the good news is, I think the the better stories that we're hearing are the ones that you know are hopefully hopefully those are the majority. Well, I hope they will continue to be that way as we struggle along in this um, moment of uncertainty. Not easy. And I think that's the largest challenge is just the ability to stay in the present while not having a clue about the future. Maybe that's a lesson that we all should have learned anyway, be present rather than continually think about something beyond our immediate experience. Absolutely. It's a good way to lessen anxiety. <laughs> You're right. On that note, Jill, I want to thank you for joining me. It's been a great conversation. I've got way more questions to ask because I think we could we'll we could go two. long and deep in this. We'll do part two. Jill Vorak, thank you for your uh, your insights, and um, I look forward to talking again. Thank you so much, David. I wish you health and happiness, and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Level Experience Design. And please remember to subscribe and share with all your friends wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out notes and links and other information like transcripts on the Next Level Experience Design webpage at simplecast.com. Also, follow me on social at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the information about upcoming shows and information on our guests who every day are taking it to the next level.